If you're keen to hear all about Korean sunscreens, how they're made, how they are regulated, and the SPF controversy that took place in 2020 and 2021, then stick around because on today, we are going to be exploring everything that you need to know to make the right choice for yourself and your skin. This is part one of two in a special where we're going to be delving and taking a deep dive into the world of Korean sunscreens and the SPF controversy. Hello and welcome to the Korean Beauty Show podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Lee, founder, podcaster, and your guide to the world of all things K-beauty. I am coming to you live from the home of Korean beauty, which is Seoul, South Korea. If you're joining us for the first time, then this is the last episode that we will be having for 2021, but we will be back in the new year with the second part of this episode of today's part one. Uh, but also with a whole host of new topics. So guys, this has been one of the most requested episodes of the podcast for a very, very long time. People have asked, you know, me to share about the Korean sunscreens that I love uh, and just want to understand a whole lot more about, you know, Korean beauty products uh, with SPF and sunscreen and all of that. And I have hesitated for a while to do this one. Uh, and that is because it's been for a couple of reasons. So the first thing is, as you will know, I am an, an Aussie, if you couldn't already tell from my accent, uh, and Style Story, which is the host of this podcast, is an Australian Korean beauty store. Now, unfortunately, because of the way sunscreen is regulated in Australia, which I'm going to go through in detail uh, later on, uh, Korean sunscreens, at least none that I know of, can actually be sold in Australia. Uh, and that is because of the way that our Therapeutic Goods Administration Act, the TGA, is set up uh, and regulated. And so that it's a very complicated process. Uh, but in a nutshell, basically, there is an approval process that needs to occur before a sunscreen product can be sold or, importantly, marketed in Australia. So this is where I fall into a little bit of an issue because, obviously, as a person that runs a store, I cannot legally market Korean sunscreens in a country where they are not le legally able to be marketed or sold. And that has, uh, you know, I guess caused me to wonder then about, you know, I guess the way that I'm able to share the information with you in a way that doesn't get me into trouble with the Australian regulators, given that none of these products can actually legally be sold in Australia. Um, I know I have had online arguments with people before, people telling me, well, you can buy them at other, you know, Australian stores, so what's the big problem? Uh, and look, there are a couple of big problems. Number one, as I already mentioned, uh, it's not legal. Uh, number two, I am a lawyer and an Australian lawyer, and that is just not a can of worms that I want to get involved in, obviously, for, uh, you know, liability reasons, because I don't want to do anything that would jeopardize, uh, you know, my um, professional ethics uh, as a an Australian lawyer. So that has caused me a couple of problems. And the other big thing is this. Obviously, as an industry insider and having worked in the industry for so long, when it comes to the products that I can share information with you about, a lot of times the, the reason that I have, a, I guess, a little bit more information than the average person on the street is because I'm actually working alongside with the brands and the companies 
companies that made the product. And they're then sharing really valuable data from their cosmetic chemists uh, from behind the scenes about their products, about the percentages of ingredients in their products, about how the product is made. And when it comes to things like sunscreens, because I can't not legally sell them in Australia. This is just not the kind of data that I am privy to in the same way that I am privy to it when it comes to just other skincare products, ordinary skincare products. And that also causes me to hesitate a little bit as well. You know, I don't want to be spreading uh, misinformation, I guess, about uh, products that I just don't have uh, the same deep knowledge of in the same way that I do about the other products that we sell, for example, on Star Story and the products that I have uh, firsthand experience with. Uh, So there's just a couple of reasons, I guess, rolled into why I've been quite hesitant to talk about Korean sunscreens in general, and then add on top of my hesitancy, which has been known probably for years. Uh, People that have been following me for a while, uh, following Style Story for a while, will know that this issue is just one that keeps raising its head because, you know, various people, I guess, keep... um, trying to find ways around the regulations that just don't exist. And that is a source of frustration to me. Uh, But then, of course, on top of all of that, at the end of last year in 2020, uh, a whole controversy blew up, which we did talk about on the show earlier in the year. And that was about uh, certain Korean sunscreens. There was one brand in particular that was, I guess, caught out first uh, in December 2020, uh, having basically been accused of their SPF product not being the labeled amount. So, you know, they were advertising it as an SPF 50 plus sunscreen product. And it turned out that when it was subject to additional testing, that the true SPF uh, label was much, much lower than that. And that kicked off an entire, uh, I guess, investigation into various different products in the Korean beauty industry, in particular products that were used, uh, products uh, from companies that were using the same manufacturer that was found to have uh, been caught out, I guess, falsifying the uh, values of the sunscreens. And it was just an avalanche of, I guess, companies being caught up in it one after the other. So rather than just, you know, following that on a daily, weekly basis, we could have literally spent the whole of 2021 just talking about this one issue. I decided to put it on the back burner for a while and just wait and see how things sort of came out in the wash, see what was done about it from the perspective of the Korean regulators, see how the brands themselves uh, handled it and what they're trying to do to make it not happen again in the future. So that is why I have held off on talking about this. Uh, As you can see, lots of different reasons why I've just been like, I don't really want to touch this one just because it is a little bit of a hot potato. There are a lot of different moving parts, lots of differences in the regulations as well. So we have listeners in uh, to this podcast in over 142 countries. So obviously the way that sunscreens are regulated in Korea is very different from the way they are regulated in America, in Australia, and in probably most of the different countries that our listeners are from. So it is just one of these, I guess, uh, topics of conversation that, you know, is a little bit uh, harder to go into also because In most cases, in many countries, sunscreen is not a simple skincare item. It is not a basic skincare item. It is regulated as a drug. And as you guys will know, or at least I hope you do by now, I am not 
a dermatologist. I am not a doctor. I am not a medical professional. So, you know, I tend to steer clear of talking about things on this podcast that that fall into the category of medicines and drugs, just because apart from the fact that I am not qualified to talk about them, it is just, you know, a minefield in terms of uh, potential legal issues with doing that as well. Uh, so that is something that I'm obviously very attuned to being a lawyer. And it's just been something that I've been a little bit hesitant to do. But because people keep asking, because the dust has settled a little bit more on the SPF controversy, I thought, why don't we take a look, try and break it down and let's go through some of the reasons for why, um, you know, the problem happened in the first place. Let's take a look at some of the Korean regulations as well. Uh, So that is what I am planning to do today is just part one. Uh, Part two, I'm going to, I guess, uh, share in the new year. So stick around if that sounds like your jam. Uh, But before we get into the meat and potatoes of today's episode, let's take a look at the K-Beauty News headlines. So in the headlines this week, health and beauty chain CJ Olive Young is looking to raise $1 billion in a local public offering that sources are saying will probably take place in early 2022. Now, if you've been to Korea, you may may recognize the name Olive Young. They operate around 1,200 stores in Korea, uh, and they also have a global distribution platform as well. So the business last year reported operating profits of 84.4 million. So that is obviously, you know, a sizable business. Uh, There are a lot of Korean companies that are doing IPOs at the moment. We've spoken about a couple on the show, but essentially this company, um, obviously CJ Olive Young, they're looking to go public. The largest shareholder in the company is CJ Corp. They hold 55.2% of their stake as of December 2020. Uh, So this is obviously going to be big if it actually goes ahead. It's obviously just in the planning stage, but I would suggest quite far into the planning stage if they're talking about it going ahead in early 2022. So that will be an interesting one to uh, keep an ear out for. That is obviously a company that is uh, a big player in K-beauty on the ground here in Korea. So that's why it's important. Now, this week's question of the week, uh, and remember guys, we do a question of the week every week and you can have your question answered if you like. If you would just like to ask us a question and not have it become the question of the week, that is also totally fine. But if you're happy for it to be shared on the show so that other people can benefit from the answer as well, then we will also do that. So this week's question was, should I be using a facial oil? Now, this is a really great question. I think a lot of people, particularly oily skinned friends, will hear the word oil and go, well, that's definitely not me because I've got more than enough oil. But the thing is that Actually, all skin types can benefit from using a facial oil. And here's why. Facial oils can help to boost moisture. They have a lot of different benefits for the skin. uh, And they're supposed to support your skin and protect your skin. So when you are choosing an oil, it's really important to take into account your skin type, obviously, because, you know, the the thicker the oil, the less suited it is going to be for someone with oily, uh, with dry, uh, oily skin, sorry, (laughs) 
the thicker the texture, less suitable for oily skin uh, and vice versa. So there are some little tips and tricks for picking the right one, but there are also a lot of different ways that you can use a face oil. Now, one way that you might not immediately think of is to mix a few drops of your oil into your moisturizer. Uh, that is a really, really common way for doing it, particularly here in Korea. A lot of people like to mix their skincare and get more benefits. So that's one way to do it. And then the other way, the way I usually apply it is before my moisturizer. I know some people also do it after their moisturizer. That is a personal choice. Whatever works for you, you can do that. Uh, that's just personally how I choose to use it. I have really, really dry, really sensitive skin, and I find that I get the best results doing it just before my moisturizer. So after my serum, I do serum, then oil, then moisturizer. That's the final steps of my night routine. So finding a facial oil that works with your skin is just honestly a godsend. It makes a real difference to your complexion. It'll make a difference to the overall uh, texture and hydration of it. So don't discount oils, particularly if you haven't tried them before. If you've tried a whole heap and it doesn't work for you, then, you know, skip this. But if you have put off trying one because you just think, oh, that sounds like a bad idea. In fact, there are so many benefits, so many skin types that will benefit from using an oil. As always, I would just suggest when you're trying a new product just to patch test it uh, and then obviously listen to your skin. If you're having a reaction, a breakout, uh, you know, it just doesn't feel very nice, then by all means, feel free, to feel free to try something else. But if you haven't already, then, you know, definitely. I think an oil is a really great step to add to your routine. I always make sure that I include one going into winter, into the cooler months, and it just makes such a big difference. So I, for one, am a massive fan of face oils. All right, so look, into today's episode, Korean sunscreens. Now, one of the reasons that I think Korean sunscreens in particular have gained so much fame, so much maybe notoriety, is because they have quite different formulations and consistencies, particularly when compared to the stuff that you will find in places like Australia and the US. And just some of the benefits that are touted by people that love Korean sunscreens and Asian sunscreens generally is that they have a very cosmetically elegant formula. They don't leave a white cast behind uh, and that they blend well with makeup. So those are the kind of arguments you will hear for people that love Korean sunscreens. They'll say, I can't find anything that performs similarly in the Western market. Only Asian sunscreens have these benefits. Uh, so we're going to get into some of the reasons with Korean sunscreens, why that might be. But when it comes to sunscreen itself, well, what are we actually talking about? Obviously, sunscreen is used to protect skin from the rays of the sun. That's at a very basic level. So the products have substances in them that either absorb or they reflect the sun's rays. So there's two different ways that they work. They either absorb it or reflect it and then prevent most of it from penetrating the skin and damaging skin cells. So that is 101 of how sunscreens actually work. There are different ways that they work. So uh, in Australia in particular, I know that we have a very harsh what is called a UV factor. And that is why 
sunscreen in Australia is taken extremely seriously. We have a very, very high rate of skin cancer and also sun damage. So Australian sunscreens are also known to be, I guess, some of the most sturdy and robust in the world. And that is why, uh, having grown up in the Australian sun as a child, I can confirm that the sun hits differently in Europe than it hits in Australia. And it definitely hits differently in Asia. It just, the feeling on your skin is very, very different when you are in Australia compared to summer in other countries. So I can, I can say that from firsthand experience that that is why sunscreen in Australia in particular is so, so important. So we talked about, uh, the absorbing and then reflecting types of sunscreen. So two types of sunscreens, the names that you will often hear when it comes to talking about these functions. The first one is what is called a chemical sunscreen. So this is the absorbing type of sunscreen. What it does is it absorbs UV rays and then neutralizes them and releases heat. So that's chemical sunscreen in a nutshell. Sensitive skin types sometimes find chemical sunscreens a little bit irritating on their skin, uh, but that is very, very personal. So there is no like sort of blanket for sensitive skin shouldn't use chemical sun sunscreen. It is very personal. The only other thing to note about chemical sunscreens that's quite important is that they can take a while to work, about 15 to 20 minutes. So that's why people will often say, I know Australian mums will say, to kids, you know, don't put your sunscreen on and run straight into the surf, you know, into the beach, into the water. And that is why, because they take a while to work. So if you're going straight in, not only could you wash it all off, but for that first 15, 20 minutes, you might actually not have the stated protection. So very, very important to know. Now, what are some of the chemical sunscreen ingredients? They include things like avobenzone, octanosate, octisalate. There's a whole lot of O names, octocrylene, oxybenzone, then homosalate, padmate A, padmate O, uh, and then another one called ecamsule. So I'm going to put a list of these in today's show notes. Don't worry about trying to write them down or, you know, get the spelling right. I will have them in the show notes for today's episode. You can find them a short scroll down in your phone or otherwise. All the show notes for every episode of the show are at thekoreanbeautyshow.com. So you can find them there. So that's the first type of sunscreen. The second type is what we call a physical sunscreen. And it's also sometimes called a mineral sunscreen. And this is the reflecting type. So this is, I guess, when you imagine like a shield that bounces down from the sun and shoots its rays in and then it's reflected back off it away from the skin. That's basically like a barrier or a shield over your skin. That's what we're talking about when we apply a physical sunscreen. So these are the types of sunscreens that are often recommended for sensitive skin types and also babies because they are said to be less irritating. Now, the difference here is that these ones work immediately upon application. So basically, as soon as you put them on, you will get the benefits from them. But one of the downsides of them is that they can sometimes feel thick and often leave what is called a white cast. And the white cast comes from one of the key ingredients, uh, 
which is zinc. So you might know, I remember when I was a kid, they used to have these products that were like different colored zincs, like red and yellow and pink. And that was just your typical physical sunscreen with zinc oxide. Another one, a really popular one is titanium dioxide. And obviously both of those ingredients are FDA and TGA approved. So to be in sunscreen ingredients, they're probably the two most common uh, sunscreen ingredients that you will hear of. Now, there are some companies out there nowadays that try to mix chemical sunscreen ingredients with the physical sunscreen ingredients, and that is designed to create a formula that has a better application, uh, that lighter consistency, less irritating. So, you know, there are a whole range of different products out there on the market these days. So, you know, literally there are more products than you would probably ever be able to try when it comes to K-beauty, Japanese beauty, Western beauty, uh, a whole lot of different ones. But that at its base is how these products are designed to work. And of course, we mentioned that they are trying to prevent two, two different types of rays. So look, as a, at, at a really simple level, we are talking about ultraviolet rays, what is called uh, UVA, and these are, and then there's the other type, which is UVB, ultraviolet B. So two different types, UVA and UVB. Now, what's the difference between the two of those? Basically, ultraviolet A has longer rays than UVB and is deeply penetrating. So these are the ones that you will hear are able to penetrate through glass windows. And that is why people like me will often say that you should wear sunscreen even if you're staying indoors because it doesn't block them. So if you're driving in a car, UVA can get through car windows. If you're studying inside next to a window, the UVA can get through. So one really handy way to remember what the various different rays are doing to your skin is A equals aging. So because UVA rays penetrate deeply, they can affect the skin and speed up the signs of aging. Basically, they're damaging our dermis. They can cause DNA damage and they're speeding up the signs of aging. So that's UVA, A for aging. UVB is our ultraviolet rays. Uh, and an easy trick to remember this one is B for burning. So basically, UVB rays are shorter, but they can penetrate the epidermis and cause sunburn. And that is what contributes to the majority of skin cancers. So sunburn and things like that, skin cancers, usually the result of UVB. So two different types of sun's rays that we are trying to protect our skin from, essentially. Uh, Now, let's take a look at some of the different labeling systems. And this is another reason why it can be so tricky when we are talking about the differences between Asian sunscreens and Western sunscreens. And that is because of the labeling systems. So SPF, you might have heard of, it stands for sun protection factor. Now, this only deals with UVB, so the burning type rays uh, that come from the sun. And what it measures is how long you can stay out in the sun without burning. So SPF burning. And the number that follows the SPF tells you how much UVB light is filtered when you're wearing a sunscreen with the stated amount of protection. So 
if you were wearing SPF 15. That will block 93% to 95% of the UVB rays. So 93 to 95%. Now, if you bump that up to an SPF 30, then that blocks approximately 97% of those rays. When you go all the way up to an SPF 50, which is usually touted as the one that you want to be wearing, uh, that blocks 98% of rays. So you can see if you're only wearing a 15, you're only blocking 93 to 95%, but that jumps all the way up to 98% when we're talking about SPF 50. So that is uh, just a really, really short way to know what it is that we're actually talking about when you are reading a sunscreen label. Another thing you will see, and this is actually regulated in Australia, is a claim called broad spectrum. So you'll see something on the product that says something like offers broad spectrum protection. Now, what that means is that the sunscreen filters both types of rays, the UVA rays and the UVB. So we're protected from the aging rays and the burning rays. That is why broad spectrum is generally the gold standard. You want to be blocking both of those rays. So zinc oxide and titanium dioxide, those two that we spoke about, can reflect both sections of the spectrum. And that is why they are such popular ingredients in sunscreens. Now, when it comes to Europe and Asia, the sunscreens there will often include another thing, and that is what's called PPD. This stands for persistent pigment darkening. And that is related to UVA, so the aging exposure only. And what that does is it determines the time that it will take for your skin to tan compared to if you weren't wearing sunscreen. So PPD, this is not one that Australians will necessarily be familiar with because we don't really use it. And the same goes for the States, but this is really common in Asia and Europe. Now, the other one is PA. So you will often see on Korean and Japanese sunscreens, a PA rating. And again, this only uh, states the amount of UVA protection that the product offers. So it's not broad spectrum. The PA rating will tell you how protected you are against the aging rays, the UVA rays. So in general, you're going to want to make sure that your skin is protected from both the UVA and UVB rays. And that's why broad spectrum sunscreens get give you the most protection on the outer layers of your skin, also down to the inner layers of the skin. So there's some really important distinctions to consider when we're talking about, you know, Korean sunscreens, Asian sunscreens specifically. And this rating system and the confusion around it is another reason why uh, in Australia, certainly, they, sunscreen products that are to be introduced to the Australian market, to be listed on the TGA's uh, register, on the ARTG, or to be marketed in Australia, will need to go through a different labelling process. And that is because we have regulations around what these terms all mean, and it's not the same in other countries. So that is a big reason why you can't just uh, buy a Korean sunscreen as it is sold on the shelf in Korea in Australia. That does not work. That is not a thing. It is not legal. And that uh, is a really important reason why. So that's, uh, I guess, you know, a thing to take into account when we're talking about all of this sort of stuff. 
So before I get into the way that sunscreens are tested in Korea, we are going to take a little ad break and have a look at some of the product reviews that have been left for products on the Star Story website. Okay, so over to stylestory.com.au and there has been a new four-star review left for April B's Glutathione Brightening Tone-Up Cream. The reviewer says, good stuff. Hello, I found this brightening cream very good. Face feels nice and smooth and brightens slightly. I would buy this product again. Happy customer, Jackie. So thank you very much, Jackie, for leaving that review. And the next one is a five-star review for iUnique's Hyaluronic Acid Toner. And the reviewer said, would recommend 100%. My skin feels so much nicer after starting to use this toner. So thank you so much to everyone who has left their review on the Style Story website. If you do shop on Style Story and you haven't been leaving reviews for your products, then you are missing out on points which can be redeemed towards cash, used as cash towards your next purchase. So don't forget to leave your product reviews after you've had a chance to try out the products, obviously. Share your thoughts. It's a great way for other people to hear what you think of the products, other people to discover new products that perhaps they wouldn't have tried before, and of course, a great way for you to earn points that you can redeem as cash. So that is all we had for this week's ad break. All right, so look, sunscreen testing in Korea was the next thing that I wanted to have a chat about just because there are different processes, obviously, in Korea for, uh, you know, regulating sunscreens. So look, in Korea, companies in general do have more access, better access to more sunscreen ingredients to work with. And that is a result of the regulations in Korea being more faster moving than regulations, certainly in Australia and the US. Uh, in a nutshell, the approval process for them is much quicker. And what that means is that newer and innovative sunscreen formulas can improve on some of the issues that the older formulas have. So things like white cast, things like you know thickness and stickiness. Korean sunscreens have historically had a great name for being able to resolve some of those issues. And one of the reason is that they have a much, much bigger, uh, I guess, palette of ingredients that they are able to work with when, when, you, when you're talking about formulating and putting these all together. So that's a massive, uh, you know, benefit. It's a massive boost. It's a boon for the K-beauty industry that the regulations allow that for them. But as I mentioned, obviously, the way that they me they measure their sunscreen protection is very different than in other countries. They're measuring PA rather than SPF. You will see some products that list both, uh, but PA is the big one. Uh, and that is obviously, as we mentioned, based on a persistent pigmentation darkening test and covers UVA only. So I am going to start, I guess, the, you know, delving into the controversy. Let's start it today. We're not going to be able to finish it just because we're running out of time. But look, 
The start of the problem with SPFs in Korea not matching their stated level of protection, the level of protection that they claimed that they had been awarded when they had gone through the testing process, was because when the company that developed the first product uh, had that first product tested, it was tested with a set formula, as you would expect. So the manufacturer manufactured the product, it had a set list of ingredients in it at set percentages, and that was the product that was then sent away to the labs for the official SPF label testing. Now, the problem was that this contractor, it is an ODM manufacturer, and what ODM manufacturers do, as we've talked about on the show before, is that they will manufacture a formula formula for a company. So a company would go to an ODM and say, hi, I want to make a sunscreen, and this is what I want the product to look, feel, you know, act like. And the ODM formula manufacturer goes, right, excellent. They go away, their chemists work on it, submit tests, uh, submit samples to the company that is commissioning the product. And then once they've found something that they're happy with, they make it, they put their label on it, they put it in packaging, uh, they box it up, and then they send it off to whoever's going to buy it, whether that's a distribution company, whether it ends up in a storefront, or whether they sell it online, or however that works. That's how this whole process works. The problem was this company had one sunscreen product that had passed all its testing, it had received an SPF of 50 plus, but subsequent companies came along and said, okay, love it, love that as a sample product, but how about if we made it into a lotion instead of a cream? How about if we make it a little bit lighter and easier to spread? So what they did is they made changes to the formula on that basis, but they used the SPF label from the original product without undergoing additional UV protection index text index tests rather. So basically they've tweaked the original formula for the new companies that came along afterwards and said, okay, here's your new product, but we'll call that SPF 50 as well because we use the same base product. Now, the thing is this, a lot of people uh, you know, rightly went up in arms and went, well, that's crazy. If you make any changes to any formula, let alone a sunscreen formula, then obviously that's going to have a big impact on how it functions. So why is that a thing? And the reason why it's a thing is that there is a regulation in Korea that basically states that functional cosmetics, which is how Uh, sunscreens are uh, regulated in Korea. They are regulated as functional cosmetics. So you've got a group of cosmetics that are called Kicho Hwajangpum, basic cosmetics. And then you also have Kinengsong Hwajangpum, which are called functional cosmetics. And there are two very different ways that those products enter the market. Functional cosmetics need to be submitted for review. However, this regulation stated that if they have already been reviewed, uh, then they're exempt from submitting the additional data if they have the same type, standard, and volume of raw materials uh, that show that the efficacy and effectiveness of the same are you know, the responsibility of the ODM manufacturer. So this came directly from a regulation on the review of functional cosmetics. Exemption from submission data is literally what this is called. Uh, and here's the kicker. Liquids, 
lotions and cream products are considered the same formulation. So essentially, the first product that was submitted for testing, which as we mentioned was a cream, when the subsequent companies came along and said, right, we want to make a few tweaks and make it lighter into a lotion, they were didn't need to submit it to additional data on the basis of this regulation. That was legal in essence. What these companies were doing was legal in accordance with Korean law. So the thing is this, the what they call that in Korean law is the main ingredient concept. So the ultraviolet category in functional cosmetics is regulated on the basis of the main ingredient concept. Uh, and, you know, for, for that reason, so some sort of change to the formula is totally legal. But obviously it is common sense that if you make any change in a formula, you know, even if they use the same ingredients, but if you do change anything in the formula, the efficacy, the sensation, you know, the, the smell, all of that can vary based on changes in a formulation. But the thing is this, the companies if they had put their products through additional testing, that costs money. So there was some uh, commentary in the Korean media that the reason that these companies had chosen not to submit their products to additional testing was because they could avoid an additional 5 million odd won. So 5 million won equates to about 5,000 US dollars roughly. So, you know, to submit the product to additional testing would have cost them money. In a nutshell, it was going to cost them money. So look, I am already running over time today, so I'm going to wrap it up there. But when we come back for part two, I am going to run into all of the, you know, ins and outs of the controversy. And then we're going to take a look at regulations elsewhere and see why they're different uh, and then go through a whole lot of other stuff in relation to that. This is a very meaty topic, as you can tell. So I've got a lot to say about it. So I hope that you will join me again next year in 2022 for part two of our sunscreen special and diving into the Korean sunscreen controversy. But that is it for 2022 for the uh, 2021. Gosh, I'm rushing ahead. 2021. We're not there yet. Um, And what we will be doing for over the Christmas holiday break is just um, revisiting some of our past episodes. So stick around for that if you're interested in that. Otherwise, have a good break. And I will see you in 2022 back on the show. And until next time, I will, of course, see you on stylestory.com.au.